0: Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. That glory is an expression of your perfect holiness. And in your word, that glory is shown to us visibly and physically in bright light because the visual manifestation of your glory is overwhelming and it is an expression of the perfections of your character and nature and the totality of who you are and we should be as Isaiah is humbled, broken, fallen before you when we see you for who you truly are. And we should express as Isaiah expresses that we don't belong in your presence. Yet, you have made a way in Jesus for us not only to be in your presence, but to be there with confidence and boldness To even make requests of you, God. Your grace is truly unbelievable. And it's for that that we worship you this morning. So as we explore how you've shown up in history and how you show up still, help us to see your grace for what it truly is. And... May we be satisfied in it so you would be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want you to know Jesus, I want you to pursue Jesus. I want you to desire Jesus. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to delight in Jesus. I want that for you because I know that's what the word tells me, that you and me should all want. Now, there are other wants we can have, but there is no want greater than Jesus because there is no need greater than Jesus. Now, in order for you to know, pursue, desire, love, and delight in Jesus, that requires that Jesus shows up. You can't know him, you can't pursue him, you can't desire him, you can't love him, and you can't delight in him if he doesn't make himself known to us. And what we know and that's the reason we're here today, what we know is that he has made himself known. So what is a word that we could use that scripture also uses for this idea of Jesus showing up? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um... We could use a biblical phrase like made known. That's a phrase. Those are words that are used often to talk about Jesus showing up, God showing up, made known. Uh, Reveal is another word in scripture or revelation is another word in scripture where Jesus makes himself known. But there's a word that we often don't talk about and It's not really a doctrinal concept we discuss much because it's covered in things like revelation, the idea of Jesus revealing himself. And it's a word that talks about him showing up, and it's a word that Scripture uses often, and that word is appear. Scripture uses the word appear 73 times to communicate to us about the literal appearance of the Lord himself. So there are <clears throat> more, excuse me. <clears throat> there are more than 73 uses of the word appear and there are more than 73 texts that refer to God making himself known through a variety of different ways using a variety of different words or phrases. But I'm talking about specifically using the word appear and that appearance being the appearance of the Lord himself. That happens 73 times in scripture. So what we're going to do over the next five weeks is we're going to take a short break, next four weeks technically, and then the fifth week we get back in. But we're going to take a short break from our exposition of 1 Timothy And over the next five weeks, we're going to examine several texts that specifically tell us about the appearing of the Lord and how that relates to Christmas, to our theology, to the gospel, and to practical Christian Christian living that honors God and exalts the purpose of the Messiah's birth in this series of scriptures we'll call The Appearing of Christ. If you don't think that's a clever enough title, and you don't know how many times I had to ask Chat GPT to give me a better one, and they just couldn't do it. I had to keep modifying the question, no ChatGPT, I don't want it sounding like that. Do it like, And they just, they, you know, it, it got wild, and I was like, you know what, let's just keep it simple. We're going to call this the appearing of Christ. So the last sermon in the series will be the Sunday after Christmas which coincides with our next verses in 1 Timothy, in our 1 Timothy text, which is 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 14. So the last text in our five-week series will also be our next text that we would be picking up in, in 1 Timothy 6. And if you're thinking, wow, Mark, you really orchestrated that really well, that was completely accidental. I got through the first four sermons, and I'm like, I need a fifth sermon it talks about the appearing, but I also want to pick up in 1 Timothy 6. Hmm, what does 1 Timothy six eleven through 14 talk about anyways? Oh, quote, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, no way! So I didn't plan that, and, <clears throat> and it's just cool how God orchestrates things that way. And so instead of, take, instead of thinking of this as a break from our exposition of 1 Timothy, consider it four weeks of theological preparation for our next text in 1 Timothy. So today, though, we're in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, verses 11 through 14, and then we'll also get to verses chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. So in Titus 2.11, Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I hope you can see the Christmas theme, the birth of Christ in this. Grace has appeared. The grace of God has appeared when Christ appeared. And we'll talk about Christ's appearance over the next five weeks. But we can identify What the grace of God is in this verse in two ways from this verse because the grace of God here does two things in this text. It makes two actions and by identifying the actions we can identify the identity of the grace of God. So one the grace of God appears meaning it shows up and two, the grace of God brings salvation for all people. So if we put these two actions together, we can see that the grace of God appears in Jesus because Jesus alone brings salvation. So if the grace of God is bringing salvation, then we know the grace of God is in Christ because only Christ brings salvation. And Paul is not giving Jesus another name. He's not calling Jesus the grace of God as if that's a name. Rather, he is telling us that Jesus is the means by which God makes his grace known. Or Jesus is the way that God's grace appears. <clears throat> now, in verse 12, Paul is going to launch into some implications of Jesus' appearance and his, and his salvation. But first, let's take a moment to consider what it means for Jesus to appear. Of those 73 verses in Scripture that have the word appear in them and refer specifically to being appearances of God himself in some fashion. Of those 73, 51 of those verses are in the Old Testament. Now there are more than 51 references of God revealing himself in the Old Testament, but 51 of them use the word appear. And that is a unique distinction. Because the word appear is almost diametrically opposite from the word grow or born. Why is that significant? Because it shows us how unique and different God is from us. None of us appeared. We have all grown into who we are. We all started as seeds planted in the womb, and grew from conception to where we are today, and we will continue to grow in this life, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So no one has ever caught off guard by our existence because we grew into our current state as humans. But God cannot grow because you can't perfect perfection. There is no growth in God. There's no necessity for God to grow But Jesus, in his humanity, grew just like we do. But in the Old Testament, he did not grow into these experiences. He did not grow into the human body or into the glory that he reveals in these appearances. Rather, he simply appears. And all of those Old Testament appearances serve many purposes, but... There is one underlying purpose that continued to be announced when he appeared in the Old Testament. And that announcement, every time he appeared, though often unsaid, was that there will be one day when he will not suddenly appear as he does during the Old Testament. But instead, there will be a day when he will appear just like you and I appeared through conception, birth, and growth. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 says Jesus was conceived. Matthew 1 chapter verse 23 says Jesus was born. Luke 2 52 says Jesus grew. Just like every human. Except that his conception, according to Matthew 1 20, is from the spirit, not from man. Making him unlike the rest of humanity by not inheriting Adam's original sin, right? Sin comes from the father. Sin is transferred through the father because sin is transferred through the seed. The womb is the holding place for the seed. Sin is carried from generation to generation, from human to human. And according to Romans, all of us have inherited sin through our father's seed because that's what we are, the seed of our father. But Christ was conceived through a miracle to pass over Adam's seed, which would lead to death. So therefore, instead of Jesus dying the way we die because he did not inherit sin, he dies according to his own will and can therefore take up his life from death according to his own will because he does not carry in himself sin that we Carry, making him not only a worthy sacrifice, but a loving and gracious savior and our God, which qualifies him to be the sacrificial lamb. And that is all the stuff, and there's more than that. That's there's a lot of theology there that I just kind of <laughs> breezed over, a lot of gospel that I just breezed over, and all that's possible. Because Jesus was conceived, born, and grew. And in the Old Testament, it's quite the opposite, where he just shows up and then disappears. He appears and then disappears. And all those appearances serve to many purposes, but primarily served a point, which was to announce to the world that there's going to be a day when his appearance would be different than the appearances in the Old Testament, than the 51 times when he appears or references to his appearance. So all those Old Testament Text serve that purpose, but also serve another purpose that he will not, not, not only when he appears in the Old Testament, does that tell us that he'll appear later? But it's a warning that he'll appear permanently. So instead of disappearing... What the announcement is, is is that when he appears through the womb, there will no longer be a disappearance. He will stay in that body forever. When Jesus was born, Mary's womb became Jesus' literal entry into an eternal state of humanity in which he will remain in forever. All for the salvation of his people to achieve and to magnify the glory of God by revealing God's grace. And that should tell us two things. One, it should tell us how valuable are the souls of God's elected loved ones that God himself would leave his eternal spiritual state to become like the very beings he created, like the very beings that need his salvation. How valuable must the elected soul be for him to do that? And two, how much more valuable is the glory of God than the souls of the elect that God himself would ordain the inclusion of sin into those souls whom he loves. So too, reveal to them their sin and their need for a savior so that God would be most glorified in mercy, grace and forgiveness through Christ and all of that required that we get a benefit and that benefit was born on what we call Christmas Day. So all of these Old Testament appearances served as anticipation of the culmination of God's mystery that was then revealed in the birth of Jesus that then served as the means by which he dies for our sins and in his death His death then serves as the means by which he is resurrected. And only in our faith in him do we share in his death and resurrection. So he dies and he rises. And our faith in him connects us to him. It's the pathway, it's the ticket that opens up this clear and clean Avenue to meet Christ, to see Christ, to know Christ, and to receive from Christ his perfect righteousness. And when we are connected to him by trusting in him with faith, believing his gospel, we receive from him not only his righteousness, but we receive from him his death. We get His death. We too die a death like His. Meaning, we don't have to die in this life or die, I mean, we don't have to die eternally. We get to live eternally because of His righteousness. And how do we express or experience that death if we don't actually die eternally? Well, we we don't. I mean, there are ways in which we experience death in this life. We'll die, our bodies might die. We like get to completely skip death. And we get to go straight to resurrection. I mean, we might die in this body, but that's nothing compared to eternal death, which is the way scripture describes death. And so we get this like, Like I know, we all know this. This isn't like some novel truth. This is the gospel. Like you know this, but like just think about that. You believe in Jesus. You trust in Christ for your for your salvation because of His sacrifice for you that you didn't earn, and He dies a death you deserve to die. And what you get in return is you don't die, and you just get eternal life. And He's just like so. The hardest thing you'll ever have to go through is today. That's so unfair. We do not deserve that. If there's ever a moment in your life, ever, ever, anything, any tiny little thing or big thing that happens to you in this life, that you think to yourself, that's not fair. That was an injustice on me. If someone walks up to your desk and steals your eraser... You go, that's not fair, that was my eraser. Such a tiny little inconvenience, not a big deal. No one's going to throw a fit. From such a tiny little injustice to major injustices, such as you are wrongly accused of crimes you didn't commit and you're sentenced to a lifetime in prison where you will be executed. And you did nothing wrong. You go, this is injustice and unfair. You should stop yourself and say, actually, I deserve this because I deserve worse and I'm not getting worse. So anything short of eternal suffering away from the presence of God is unfair in my favor. So we get to skip death because of what he did and by skipping death we not only share in and so that's how we share in his death that this life and its hardships are the quote-unquote death that we experience according to Romans eight seventeen, 17 it says if we are heirs with Christ we are heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So if we suffer with him in this life by following him, which will produce hardships in your life, then what the result of that is, is we also get resurrected with him. And we find that in Romans 6. Now, in Titus 2.11, Paul says that Jesus is bringing salvation for all people. And you might be looking at that and going, yeah, well not all people get saved. We know that much. We find instances in Scripture itself where there are people who have died and not gone to the presence of God where they, are, where they go to hell. Scripture is very clear that there is a place called hell. There is also a place called um, a lake of fire. There's also a place called outer darkness. There's also a place called the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a place called separation from the glory of God. And all of these describe this thing that we call hell. And it's a place where people go when they don't trust in Jesus for their salvation. And we know it exists because scripture says it exists and Jesus talks about it more than anything else. and so we know this place exists which means that we know and we know people go there which means that not all people get saved so then why does paul say that jesus is bringing salvation for all people matthew 22 14 jesus says many are called but few are chosen matthew 7 14 he says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few Paul says in Romans 9, 27, that only a remnant of the Jews will be saved. So this means that not everyone's chosen. Not everyone finds eternal life. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone goes to heaven. So Jesus doesn't save all people. So then why would Paul use the word all? The salvation that Jesus brings is sufficient for all. Even though not all humans will receive it, it is sufficient for everyone. Additionally, the word all must be contextualized by understanding who Paul is talking to and talking about. The context demands that Paul is talking only to Christians because the following verses include things that only those who are saved can do. So we know he's talking to believers and he's talking about believers, so then the word all is contextualized within the body of believers. So all doesn't mean all people who ever lived. Or all people who are currently alive. All must refer to all the elect. Think about it like this. I bring a dish to your party. And I say that I brought this dish for everyone. First, I do not mean everyone in the world. And I don't have to clarify that I mean not everyone in the world, just everyone here in the party. Because the context of the situation doesn't need to be stated because it is obvious the dish is for everyone who's at that party or anyone who shows up. So the use of the word all can be exclusive to a set of group of people or select group of people based on the context. And the context here is the church. So he brings salvation to the church, to all people elected by God. Second, not everyone at the party will eat that dish that I brought. And if they don't eat it, it doesn't negate the fact that I brought it for everyone and that I offered it to everyone, even if they refused. So all doesn't refer to all people ever, but to all the elect, though it is offered to all people through all time and sufficient for every person ever, which is why... Because we don't know who are elect. Which is why we still share the gospel. Because the gospel is sufficient for every soul. Now there is a reason we needed Jesus to appear. So that he could live a perfect life. Die for our sins and conquer death in his resurrection. And that work of his affords to us not only automatic, eternal life when we trust in Him with faith. But because of the new life He has planted in us, it also enables us to do things in this life. So this is not just about eternity. It's about this life too. There are benefits today that Paul's going to talk about here that we could never have done before. Things we could never have done in this life that we now have because of our faith in Christ. Because He appeared. So there are four things that God's grace in Christ provides for us in this life from these texts. The first thing is God's, the first thing God's grace in Christ provides is, number one, obedience. Verse 12. The appearing of His grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That is obedience. That is sanctification summed up. That salvation that already came, is already present, and is already guaranteed, is not yet completed in this life. So this life becomes a training ground to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, which means controlled by the Spirit, to live upright, which means righteously, and to live godly lives when? In this present age, during this life. So by God's grace, the salvation continues to work by the Spirit's indwelling to produce in us during this lifetime our training into better obedience to God. The second thing God's grace in Christ provides is hope, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you told me that you are not coming over to my house today, then why would I wait for you to show up? Why would I wait for you to appear? I'm not going to stand in my window and be like, he said he's not coming. Where is he? That doesn't make any sense right? We wait because we know he's coming back. And that is God's way of encouraging us in this lifetime to work hard in our sanctification. Number one is obedience. Why do we obey? Because we have hope. Because we know he's coming back. I want to live in a way that exalts The one who's coming back for me because he's going to show up again and I'm going to have to face him and I'm going to have to see him and he's going to confront me and he's going to talk to me and I'm going to have to answer for my life. Now that answer is irrelevant to my eternal state of being because only he has done what it takes for me to be saved and the way I live my life doesn't determine my eternal state. Think about it like this. Imagine a woman going on a first date. And when her date shows up, she's in sweatpants and a hoodie and she's totally disheveled and her hair's a mess. She's got no makeup on. She's got Cheeto dust on her hoodie or something, you know. She's watching TV. She's like, oh, you're here. Clearly not ready for the date. Yet she knew he was coming. The date was planned. She knew he was coming. He would be offended because she clearly is not prepared for the date. And her lack of preparation reveals her lack of care or respect or gratitude or desire for the man who is coming to pick her up. Jesus wants us ready. Not for a date, but for what Scripture calls a wedding feast with his perfected bride. Hope motivates us to get ready and obedience is the act of getting ready. And only when Jesus shows up is the bride ready. And the third thing that God's grace in Christ provides is redemption. Verse 14, Jesus Christ That's the end of 13. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That is sacrifice. That is love. That action of Jesus who gave himself for us. That sacrifice is grace. That is why Paul says in verse 11, the appearing of the grace of God. And what that sacrifice does is it not only redeems us or purchases us back from sin and death, but in that purchase, he bought our perfection. Because there's this great exchange when he dies for us and when we trust in him with faith. What faith does, I told you earlier that faith creates this clear avenue between us and God. And what faith does in this clear avenue is it creates an exchange where we Go to him, actually more biblically, he comes to us and he takes from us our sin and he replaces it with his perfect righteousness. And we become, as Second Corinthians 5.17 says, new creations. And that is revealed in the fourth provision of God's grace. So the fourth thing God's grace in Christ provides is purity. Verse 14 and two. so why does he give himself up? To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That word zealous means passionate pursuit. So he gives himself up. He sacrifices his life. To save ours, not just for the eternal state of being saved, but so that in this life we could do something different than die and live like death and live in sin. But that we could do something different and something better, which is to be people who are passionately pursuant of good works. And, and those good works don't earn you anything. They don't gain you anything. They don't do anything but magnify what he has done. Why is a wife faithful to her husband? Is it so that he wouldn't marry her? No. It is to magnify the beauty of their union. And, and well, what's her motivation? She loves him. Well, why does she love him? Because he loves her well enough That she loves him back. And how is her love secured in her husband? By the way he loves her. Who's doing this purifying? If we only had verse 12, which tells us, you know to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. If we had only verse 12, we might think that he saved us so that we could finally use our own strengths to, to live these godly lives. But now we see that the words to purify, in verse 14, are done by Jesus Christ. And he does it for himself so that in possessing us, which he did through purchasing us with his own blood, we would become people by his power and, and his strength and his righteousness who are zealous or passionately, passionately pursuant for good works, which, according to Ephesians 2.10, are God's good works that he prepared for us. So they're his works. We're doing them, but they're his. He owns them, he created them, he prepared them, he causes them, you walk in them because his spirit is causing you to walk in them. Galatians 2.20, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So who's living in me? Christ. And the life I now live, wait, I live? No, Christ is living. So the life I'm living, which is operated by Christ, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So all the good works I'm doing... Created by God, ordained by God, prepared by God, established by God, and operated through me by God. Why? So that we'd be glorified? No, that's why God does it all. So that no Christian can go, "Look what I did, God! Did you see how good I was, God?" He's go, "You don't understand. You can't do good. You can't do good." Any good you do was me. That's what he tells us. So that, Ephesians 2, 9, so that you don't have an ounce of boasting, so that you could never stand before me and go, God, look what I did for you. So that every time you do good, you would praise God that any good, that there is any good in you and that the good in you is Christ alone. And all of that serves a very important purpose. That he would be glorified and we would be satisfied in him. Because if we did any of the good, if it were on us, you couldn't be satisfied because you can't do good. So now you say, well, aren't Christians supposed to do good? Well, yeah, we do because the Spirit's in us. Because we have faith in Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit who now operates in us and through us and for us and God does it in such a powerfully unique and mystifying way, to be quite honest, a mysterious way, that our operation in holiness feels very authentically free yet scripture tells us that it is god's work and then there scripture paints this picture where it's this cooperative joining of god and his people coming together all orchestrated and done and achieved by god alone in christ by the power of the spirit to have this union where we are commanded to do things that we have to personally be motivated to do and that is a reality that we are doing things. And yet, Scripture tells us that we, and scripture tells us we are to do those things. And then it also tells us that it's God doing it. How do you reconcile all that? Well, honestly, that's a theological conversation for another day. And if you've been here long enough, you've probably already heard it. But it, what, the reason that reality exists that way is so that when we do good, God would be glorified, not us. Now, these truths that God's grace in Christ provides for us obedience and obedience is motivated by hope and hope is, hope is possible through redemption all to serve a purpose of purifying His church, His bride, His people for His glory. Those changes in the life of a person who says that they are a Christian, should be life-altering. That should be a significant change. That should be a noticeable change. That should be a dramatic and drastic change in the life of somebody who claims to be a Christian. And one of the greatest excuses for people who don't follow Jesus And their excuses, they're not justifiable excuses, nevertheless, people make them, is they look at the way Christians, self-proclaimed Christians behave and they go, I don't want to be like that. That person isn't any better than me. They're not any better than me. Why would I change my life to be the same? Why would I give up all the things I enjoy in life to follow some God that you claim is God that did something for me or something just to live exactly how I'm living? Because your life looks just like mine. So I have two responses to that. Number one, that should tell Christians obviously that, um, you know, it's important that our good works exist so that others could see the glory of God and exalt his glory. That's what Jesus talks about. Let others see your do good works before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So our good works serve a purpose where they motivate other people to see the goodness of Christ in us so they would see the glory of Christ and want him. But there's this other reality where you look at that unbeliever who makes that claim and you say to them, you're right. I'm not better than you. And everything that I do that makes you say that I'm not better than you is exactly the reason you need him. Because it's not about your good works. It's not about your actions. You are a sinner inherently at your core, your personhood is tainted with sin from conception. We get that from Psalm 51 and many other texts. That we are, we inherit sin from conception, from the seed that was our father, that comes from our father. We inherit that sinful nature. And it's only corrected by faith in Christ. And the fact that I don't, might not look that different in my lifestyle from a non-believer reveals that my good works aren't that great. That my good works, God isn't gonna let if if okay, think about it like this. If if you were to look at two people, if God looks at two people and he says, Well, this person's like, you know, 42% good, and this person's like 41% good, and the 42% good person is a Christian, and the 41% good person is a non-Christian. Uh, which one's going to heaven? Well, 42%, he wins, he has more good in him. God's gonna look at that and go, there's no distinction between the good in a non-believer and the good in a believer because both of them can't do good. They cannot please God the Father because Hebrews eleven six says that only faith can please Him. And Why does only faith please Him? Because only perfection pleases God. So you have to be perfect to please God. So then why do Christians please God? Because I don't know any perfect Christians. Why do do Christians please God if only perfection pleases God? Because only faith pleases God. And what does faith get us? It gets us to Christ. And what is Christ? Perfect. And so when God sees us because of our faith in Christ, Christ stands in for us. And when God sees us, he doesn't go, 42% good. He goes, perfect, 100% good, nothing but good. And it pleases and satisfies me to my core completely because when I look at Mark or I look at you or I look at him or I look at her, I see my son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect righteousness because it has covered them. So your good works don't earn you anything. They don't do anything in terms of salvation. But when we realize that gospel, it should dramatically change the way we live. Getting the idea of earning anything out of our head because our good works don't earn us anything. Getting into our heart, this feeling, this experience, this knowledge, this desire to I want to use this life now, now that I've got the power of the Spirit to do it, I want to use this life for a purpose that magnifies the one who died for my eternal soul. He deserves it. And these changes in our life ought to be so have such a massive impact on the way we live our lives on this earth. Such incredible changes should 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 be revealed in the way that we live and how we operate and how we think. That that I, I think they should be so dramatic that we would almost teeter in our sinfulness on this. I, I, on this reality that it might cause us to get a little self-inflated and confident in our own behavior, thus arrogantly glorifying like, our own works as if they were our own production. Like Our lives should be so drastically good and, and changed. And, and, and when I say good, I don't just mean you're just a good person. I mean that even what is good is that even when you're bad, what do Christians do when they're bad? Because I can't be good all the time. So what's the good thing to do when I'm bad? Be humble. Repent. Seek restoration. Fall on your face before God and thank him for his grace to cover your sin. Because what you just did that was bad should send you to hell. But it doesn't because you believe in a gospel that is greater than your bad. Because the gospel is so good. It's called the gospel because it means good news. So even when you're bad, you get to do good in response to being bad and be humbled and praise God when you're bad for his grace of his gospel. And if we can't do that and we think we're just doing good because that makes God happy and we're just trying to make God happy with us, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. And that's gonna cause us to get inflated and arrogant and we're gonna start glorifying our works as if they're our own works. But Paul completely destroys that possibility in chapter three, verses four through eight by explaining to us what he meant back in chapter two, verse 11, when he identified Jesus with the word grace. Paul gives us a very similar phrase in chapter three, verse four, that he gave us in 2.11 by writing about the appearing of Jesus using his characteristics instead of his name. And then shows us the grace of God using two other words that explain his grace. So he writes, to, he writes in Titus chapter 3 verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So just like in 2.11 Jesus appears. And in his appearing he reveals something about himself. This time it being his goodness and loving kindness. And if there was still any consideration from chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that because of Jesus, we are the ones doing good, as if he just helped us along so that we can do our own good, Paul crushes that theory with these words in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is all Christ's work. And our role is clarified here that we have done no good to earn this salvation, but instead it was given to us freely as a gift of Christ's own mercy, and he did it by the Spirit's regenerative and renewing works of our souls in saving us. And the Holy Spirit was given to us by Jesus, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice something there? Before he even talks about you doing good works, before we get this command to do good works, what does he say? He doesn't mention good works. He doesn't talk about good works. He doesn't talk about you doing anything. He says Jesus poured his spirit in you and justified you by grace according to the hope of eternal life. He did it, done, period, over. Saved, secured, finished. Now what? Devote yourself to good works. Do you see the relationship between good works and your eternal life? One is not dependent on the other. There's a reason Paul establishes first the eternal blessing of salvation achieved by christ through the spirit for your hope in this life of eternal life that is guaranteed for you and then paul says now that that is secured done and finished and you know it and it's who you are nothing can change that now spend the rest of this life living like that's real Now, we are commanded to devote ourselves to good works after we are assured of our salvation because good works do not cause the salvation we have. Good works magnify the salvation we have. And Jesus is our salvation. So your good works... Magnify Christ. That's what they do. That's all they do. Now, I mean, I should say that's all they do. They don't do more than that. They confirm for you, they create assurance and confidence in your salvation, they prove you're saved and things like that, but they don't earn anything more than what Christ has already done. They don't cause anything except the glory of God that exalts his good works that he has caused in you and for you so that he alone would be glorified. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and Ezekiel 36, 27. So, what do we get out of that? Well, first of all, eternal life. What do we get out of that today, in this life? Well, I could give you a list of Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. I'll just give you a few. What do we get out of this in this life today? Joy. Joy is, a, is the number one thing everyone's looking for. There's nothing anybody wants more than joy. Convince me otherwise. Change my mind. You tell me that there, there, are, people who, who, there are people who claim they love misery. Uh, you know, and, and people who love pain and things like that. It's like, yeah, well, why do you love it? Because it gives you what? Joy. It makes you happy. That makes you happy. So somehow, way, whatever avenue we're trying to get there, everybody's looking for happiness. Everybody wants joy. And the only joy that's sustainable and real and lasting and meaningful is in Christ. So what do we get out of it? Joy. We get satisfaction. We get pleasure. We get Peace. Peace. Comfort in hard times, we get encouragement and strength and the assurance of our eternal life. All because God's grace, goodness, and loving kindness appeared for us in Jesus. So, we make it our aim to be waiting in obedience and ready in righteousness for when he appears again. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We want to do good by you. We want to do it for you. And we want to do it because of what you've done for us. We want to do it to magnify your good work. We want to do it to magnify magnify your gospel. And we want to do it because it pleases you. And we want to do it so that we know that it's you doing it. And we want to do it so that other people would see it And they would glorify you too. We want to avoid doing any obedience, Lord, for the sake or thought of feeling like that somehow makes us look better to you. Because that would be a disgrace to Jesus. To think that something I do is better than what he did. Let us rest joyfully, peacefully, and wonderfully well in your grace, to do it for us. And then create in us a response of good works that we do, not in the struggle to make you happy in us, but out of the simple, peaceful, pleasurable joy of doing it just because we love you. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.